Vladimir Putin in Russia said they're going to roll out a vaccine. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the August 12th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. We've recently switched platforms from YouTube to On24 to provide our learners with a more interactive platform. For an optimal viewing experience, we recommend expanding your browser window while viewing this presentation. You can expand the media player, which a video plays from, or the slides window to suit your preferences. Please note, polling questions will appear in the slides window. Polling questions will appear shortly as well as at the end. Please click the box that corresponds to your answer choice and click the submit button. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window and is a green icon in the bottom menu. Today's learning objectives are, describe data pertaining to study of olfactory symptoms discussed in this webinar, discuss findings of interview-based study of symptom duration in non-hospitalized people with COVID, and describe preliminary data from the observational study of convalescent plasma. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. Joining us today is Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thanks, Dr. Awater. Thank you, Faith. And as many of you have heard, the number of confirmed cases in the United States have crested over 5 million, but on the good news, at least amongst the United States, the number of daily confirmed cases has drifted downward. And I'm hoping that's the impact of news media and public health officials really identifying the increased spike and getting people to wear masks and socially distance. So uh, I'm very hopeful, of course, though, we're opening up universities and schools, so we do have to pay some attention. I thought this week I have on the left-hand side in this slide some indication of what is normally done for influenza. And for influenza, trying to figure out if there's really marked increase in cases, there are sentinel emergency rooms looking at patients who might present with an influenza-like illness. And of course, this is still being tracked here. Unfortunately, the type is a little small, but, but the point is really since early July and some of the peaks that we had seen overall, cases that look like pneumonia, influenza-like illness, and so on, uh, do seem to have some downward drift, which is good news. The numbers still presenting with shortness of breath up at top, which of course could be congestive heart failure, asthma, and other explanations has remained rather stable. So we'll see what trends hold 
on the right-hand side, what I have is some sense that uh, you might think, oh, there's not so much red here, but really almost all states continue to have some increase in the number of cases compared to the week before, but not nearly as much as a month ago. So uh, again, I think this just bears very close watching. And of course, what's happening in communities will vary. New York City has extremely low rates, below 1%, whereas other aspects of the country, especially in the South and rural areas, uh, could have much higher rates of positive tests. Uh, I thought I would just pivot uh, briefly to some clinical information. I think many of you, if you've ever known anyone that's had COVID-19 disease, uh, has often commented on the loss of taste and smell. And this has often come up in a number of look back series. But I thought this Italian paper from Italy, Bologna, that uh, was recently published, which is a prospective one, was interesting. And these were uh, patients over 100 that were followed who had what we would call acute COVID-19. They didn't have a long duration of symptoms. And they were followed prospectively with scoring for both taste and smell at 0, 10, and 20 days. And really, two-thirds of people had both disorders of taste and smell. This is uh, a bit higher than other uh, series, but it really is keeping with the fact that although not unique to this coronavirus, other viruses can do the same. Uh, this seems to have a much higher rate than others, at least. But of course, this is being more carefully studied. Now, overall, when this cohort was looked at, the idea was, gosh, if you lose your taste and smell, does this have any prognostic significance? And at least at the onset of illness, it did not. However, if people still had problems with taste and smell at day 20, it did appear to correlate with more severe disease that may have landed people in the hospital. The next clinical aspect I wanted to chat about is just COVID-19, viral illness, most people, you think of viruses, you're over them in a matter of days, perhaps at most a week or two. But with COVID-19, this does not seem to be the case. We know from severe illness, people can be in the hospital for weeks and weeks, even months if they happen to end up on a ventilator. However, for people with more mild disease, it really has not been as carefully studied. And of course, this is not a very precise study. It's dependent on interviews. But this analysis from the Centers for Disease Control looked at 200 plus interviewees of people who had COVID-19 in different states. And most people had symptoms at the time of their testing and interview. What was found is that even at the time of the interview, which was on average 16 days after the onset of symptoms, about a third had not returned to feeling 100%. And what you can see from age is the older you are, the more likely uh, you would still have symptoms, including people over 50, about half. It didn't quite matter, it seemed, whether you had certain symptoms, such as cough, fatigue, Interestingly, people who were short of breath actually had a, a smaller percentage, which is a little hard to understand. And so this was a survey, but I, I think it highlights that this virus does seem to have some kind of longer term, probably immunological perturbation. So for example, other viruses like Epstein-Barr virus that causes infectious mononucleosis 
well known that about 10% of people experience fatigue up to six months after onset, as opposed to people that have the common cold that usually are better in five or 10 days. And Epstein-Barr virus uh, really uh, wreaks havoc with B cells. COVID-19 tends to cause low white counts, especially leukopenia and lymphopenia. And we're just beginning to understand more about some of the T regulatory cells that seem to manifest the more severe aspects of disease. On the treatment angle, there was an interesting webinar presented at the Mayo Clinic earlier uh, this month in August. And uh, there's a link here for those of you who would like to look at it. And the background story is that convalescent plasma, which has been used for Ebola and influenza treatment, uh, has been advocated convalescent plasma, people have recovered from COVID-19 for administration people with infection. Now, the FDA made the decision in March that rather than do a randomized controlled trial, they would give emergency investigational drug use so anyone could receive it if you fit certain criteria of severe COVID, generally uh, pneumonia with hypoxemia. And they thought, well, the FDA said, we can always look at historical controls. So a large number of patients have been transfused, but there's really not a lot of good data and it's observational. And so what the, the group that's organizing this effort and presenting data uh, to the FDA, uh, Joyner and others from the Mayo Clinic and really nationwide, including at Johns Hopkins, have decided to look at 3,000 patients for which they knew the titer of the plasma. Uh, they knew if it was so-called high titer, meaning there was neutralizing antibodies, uh, versus so-called low titer plasma. And what they found is that patients that had high titer convalescent plasma, as opposed to low titer, had a, a significant reduction in mortality in one week, and that if you uh, look further down the road at 30 days, still about a, a third or 36 percent reduction in mortality. And uh, patients generally had uh, less than three days of illness from the onset in terms of presentation. And uh, so that was the mortality difference uh, versus if people got plasma after four days of illness and of low titer. So at least some information that seemed to be favorable, still not a randomized controlled trial. And for those of you that were on the webinar last week know that the three randomized controlled trials, which are certainly in low numbers for convalescent plasma, none of them had a mortality benefit. So the impressions were from this that, you know, sufficiently high titer convalescent plasma, that earlier administration in a hospitalization with severe COVID-19 requiring oxygen seems to be beneficial. Uh, we know that it's worked in other illnesses, but we still don't have randomized controlled trial data truly suggesting there's mortality benefit. I've heard through grapevines that the Food and Drug Administration may uh, soon authorize emergency use at this point for convalescent plasma, which would allow uh, health systems and, and so on to actually bill insurance for it, as opposed to only as an investigational agent. Lastly, in prevention, there's been a bit of a news splash over the last day or two because Vladimir Putin in Russia said they're going to roll out a vaccine. Now, if you look at the vaccine tracker from the New York Times, they've been doing a great job uh, sort of looking at progress. And so far, one vaccine's been approved, and I use that in quotes, in China 
to military recruits, but this is now the second vaccine approved for earlier limited use uh, by Russia. It's an adenovirus-based vaccine that has a spike protein genetic material from the coronavirus inserted. Interestingly, researchers tested the vaccine on themselves before human trials, and at least some information on a website in June said there were no safety events in 76 people that were tested, and it's been given apparently to 50 military personnel. The WHO lists this vaccine as a phase one study, and what's been announced, uh, whether this is true or, or just a, a political aspect with this, that this vaccine, which has not yet been rigorously tested in a phase three style to see if it's efficacious or truly safe, might be given to healthcare workers and teachers in Russia, although they say they're still going to roll out a phase three trial. This has raised some consternation uh, because this is now the second vaccine that's being rolled out without testing. Uh, we've already seen what's happened with hydroxychloroquine when uh, this was thought to be beneficial and has turned out not to be the case. And we don't want to lose uh, public trust. And there's concerns that political pressure on the FDA and Health and Human Services to roll out vaccines before they've been sufficiently tested, I think is a legitimate concern and one that many of us are watching closely. Uh, in terms of whether there will be a vaccine by October or before Election Day has been stated by some uh, of government officials, uh, this remains unlikely, I think. One of the vaccine trials furthest along is the Moderna mRNA vaccine, and at least looking at the number of people enrolled, unless if there's a dramatic increase quickly, it's unlikely that this series of two vaccines can be uh, performed in their up to 30,000 people and then have sufficient information and time to see if it's truly efficacious before October. So I think in all likelihood, we may know information more in the November and January timeframes if, if this is not rushed. So uh, Faith, that's all I have for this week and I'm happy to answer some questions, which I think we have. Thank you for those updates, Dr. Allwater. We will now move to the listener Q&A. This is our first question. Is there any news on outpatient treatment? Are any asthma medications helpful? So outpatient treatment, currently there are none, certainly that are approved or approved for emergency use. There is a multi-center nationwide trial of convalescent plasma. So if uh, you have a patient or someone that uh, may be newly positive and they wish to enroll in this trial, you can look for uh, convalescent plasma treatment trials. Uh, these are funded uh, by the Department of Defense and others. So this would be very helpful to participate in that sort of trial. There are a number of uh, other drugs that are being tested, including oral nucleosides and uh, inhaled therapy, such as interleukin-1-beta. So, you know, certainly stay tuned. There'll be more information forthcoming. You may have seen some uh, YouTube videos and so on about inhaled corticosteroids that have been advocated by some physicians as a game changer uh, for COVID-19. I would say there's scant evidence that it works. Uh, there's certainly clinical trials because we know dexamethasone 
uh, systemically is helpful. But for the moment, I, I really can't advocate that any of the inhaled corticosteroids should be used. It's a subject of further study. Okay, our second learner question. With flu season around the corner and so many symptoms that appear to overlap, how should we treat patients with fever, headache, and myalgia? I don't think you can distinguish the two. Here's sort of my thoughts, at least at this stage. First, with more attention than ever, I believe, uh, you'll be able to know if influenza is circulating in your community or not. We, this was certainly the case in February and March. We had more influenza cases than the novel coronavirus. So at some point, this may also become apparent, but also because people are social distancing and mask wear, it's entirely possible we'll have a milder and delayed influenza season compared to the norm this year. And that's what's been seen in uh, Australia, Chile, and, and other countries in the Southern Hemisphere during their recent winter. But you can't really distinguish. I, I would say that influenza, and this is very soft and subjective, but influenza tends to come on abruptly. Coronavirus is a little slower, so you don't feel like you've been hit by a ton of bricks and you have myalgia and just want to feel sort of okay and then want to crawl in bed the next. I think coronavirus is a little slower in that regard. Uh, also, coronavirus uh, tends to have more prominent shortness of breath in patients that are going to get severely ill earlier than you see with influenza. But these are not enough to distinguish. So I think what's going to happen is you'll still need to get viral tests to distinguish. And I think for patients at risk, if there's uh, concerns of influenza, then using drugs such as oseltamivir or biloxivir, which are antivirals for influenza, would be very prudent and could be prescribed. But Still, there is likely a need for telemedicine or some kind of clinical assessment, testing, and if you know ill enough, need to seek medical care. And of course, then anyone with these symptoms are going to be isolated and triaged because you have COVID-19 to prove it otherwise. So uh, I think we'll, we'll get this down better, but uh, probably for offices that don't have a lot of space uh, to see these patients, you're really going to have to have patients like this evaluated in emergency rooms or in urgent care centers that uh, are set up for this sort of evaluation. Okay, and our last learner question. What does the data say about long-term consequences of COVID-19? Yeah, certainly as you know, you may have heard earlier in this program, it looks like even patients with mild symptoms may have problems that seem to persist. Uh, it's, we, we don't have great data for the exact duration of these symptoms. I expect they probably will improve over time. That's the usual course of almost all post-infectious syndromes, uh, unless if it engenders some kind of long-acting autoimmunity. Patients that are more severely ill in the hospital, then you're dealing with critical illness complications. And of course, that's, that's better understood but, but not in the sense of being unique for COVID-19, critical illness, neuropathy, uh, respiratory insufficiency from being prolonged, uh, intubated, or if there's high oxygen requirements, or uh, the worst patients who, who survive but need extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Um, so I think these will accumulate over time. And of course, it's asked about long-term consequences. We're only at six or seven months. And really, our, 
our observational research efforts are only getting better organized now compared to a few months ago. So I think we'll have information that can better answer this question in the next three to six months. Okay, thank you. As a reminder, to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Allwater. Yeah, Faith, thank you very much. I hope everyone is staying safe. Please stay well and uh, please tune in uh, in the following weeks for more information on this fascinating, completely disruptive uh, virus. So thank you. Thank you.